Sing for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded remotely from New York City and Hong Kong. Don't forget to check out our other episodes and please subscribe to the show. Busking performance or performing arts in general is a very complex phenomenon. So what we found that its audience experience can be systematically differentiated along different aspects. Emotional engagement, intellectual stimulation, novelty, interaction, placemaking, as well as the buskers. What's placemaking? It's the extent to which the audience perceives that the performance evokes positive feelings of the surrounding environment. But if only you could see yourself in my eyes, you'd see you shine, you shine. I know you never leave me behind, but I am lost this time. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with Irish singer-songwriter Dermot Kennedy. Dermot developed his sound as a street performer in Dublin with forceful but plaintive songs like 2019's Lost. Dermot's latest album, Sonder, has brought him new levels of success with a headline tour making stops at London's O2 Arena and Madison Square Garden in New York. Also joining us from Hong Kong is psychologist Dr. Robbie Ho. Dr. Ho has published multiple scientific papers on the psychological aspects of street performance, or busking as it is commonly known. Among those elements targeted by Dr. Ho's study are quantifying the effects street performance has on the audience's perception of a public space, and also differentiating busking from begging using a psychological approach. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is See Yourself in My Eyes, Psychological Perspectives on the Perception of Street Performance. Hello, Dermot and Robbie. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you? Of course. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. If only you could see yourself in my eyes, you'd see you shine. What a great lyric, man. Thank you very much. You know, I think uh, something I kind of come back to in songs over and over again is just that I wish the people I care so much about would kind of see themselves the way I see them, you know, and how special they are to me. But yeah, it's just something that's important to me. Well, it's such a powerful sentiment. That song is chock full of them, um, a spine to hide behind. Mm -hmm. Such good stuff. And also, I, in the intro, I mentioned that these songs kind of sometimes have these plaintive, sad quality to them. But like, to be able to express that optimism through the lens of depression I think is extremely powerful. And also, in the context of what we're talking about today, I think it is also has great meaning because there's such a give and take and a symbiosis and reflection when you're working with a public audience, especially those whom are strangers, you know, in a busking scenario. So as I understand it, this is a, one of the songs that you wrote while you were still busking in Dublin. Pretty much. And I think, um, yeah, it would have been kind of starting around that time. And, you know, I think, like you said, it, like what kind of differentiates busking from begging? And I guess other, it's just that it, you are offering something of value, you know, whether someone was planning to pass by or not, you, you are sort of doing something that can hopefully improve their day. And so, uh, 
yeah, it's it is it's a funny old world, but I think it I think busking really did set me up in a beautiful way for what I do now. And it comes through in your delivery because you have such a powerful reverberant voice, and I'm sure that that served you in open public spaces. Totally, I couldn't afford an amp, and I mean, like when I bust in Boston, I did it for a few weeks where I just I didn't have a speaker, and so um, you just have to be loud, yeah. And certainly in Dublin, on Grafton Street, you know, it's just like people passing by the whole time, so you're trying to be the loudest thing on the street. So yeah, it really just you're forced into learning how to project, yeah. Grafton Street, that's one of the main thoroughfares in Dublin. And so were you ever competing with other street performers? All the time. And and it's hard, right? Because I was quite young doing it. And people can be very territorial. And it's weird to me because in my mind, music is this thing that brings people together and, and sort of it evokes kindness and love and, and collaboration. Sure. Whereas in the busking environment, it can almost be quite aggressive at times. And, and even you have to stand your ground personally. So some of the interactions aren't that sweet. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, that is the main thoroughfare. And so you're constantly competing with people for sort of space and you don't want to be too loud because you get in someone else's way. And then someone will let you have a spot for like 20 minutes. But then, you know, it's, it's a tricky world. Like anybody who plays in the street regularly or as that's how they make their living. Like I do have a huge amount of admiration for them. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure a question you're probably most commonly asked when it comes to making a living, was there any consistency to how much money you'd bring in? Was it at all reliable? No, not at all. Uh, no way. It, and and fun, it's funny you say that because when I kind of really got my stuff together in terms of like proper equipment, a proper sign, I, I treated it like a shop front nearly. Um, uh-huh. Day one, I think, is the most money I ever made, busking. Oh, wow. And uh, And then... And there wasn't consistency, but it was a very sort of uh, predictable, almost like downward trend because my enthusiasm (laughs) was just like waning the whole time. And so, um, Mm. however, it was one of the things that I found most interesting is that however I feel Mm -hmm. is directly affecting how much money is going in the case. And it's, I'm singing the same songs, I'm performing, hitting the same notes, but like the enthusiasm just wasn't there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, in reading Dr. Ho's work, so much of his research is about the audience's perspective and specifically how a performance can affect how the audience sees the public space. And and I'm a musician, and I think what's interesting is that also the performer's perspective is something that's difficult to quantify because, like, in spite of what you just said about there being a directly proportional relationship between the money and your enthusiasm haven't there been times when you'd be like that felt amazing and then you hear a recording of the show and you're like oh that was pretty mediocre or vice versa you know where you feel like it wasn't that great but someone in the audience really really connected with what you were doing oh sure yeah and i've seen i remember one time i played a show in dublin and there was a, it was years ago and there was a few things went wrong and a few things I wasn't happy with. And I found myself kind of apologizing to the crowd. Yeah. Um, not in a sort of dramatic way, but I was just like, oh, sorry, mm. like didn't get that one quite right, whatever. Mm. And then um, afterwards, there was a friend of mine in the crowd who is a very kind of successful singer from years ago. And she was saying just like, do not sort of open up in that way at all. Like do not disclose. Right. If you found it difficult, do not say like, oh, sorry about that one. Like she was like, everyone's enjoying it when you sing like do not 
there's no need to sort of let people into how you felt about it. You know what I mean? Or like, and if it's good, then I'm sure that rule goes away. Like, it's nice to, if you can share that you both think it's great. But like, if it's tricky, there's no need to be like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, uh, that's like, you know, I, I, and sort of, because I think people, I think my perception of how it's going on stage is awful. Yeah, of course. And I don't mean I think it's going awfully, but I think I, I have such a skewed perception. Like I really, and it's very helpful for me when I go to shows because I'm just like, this is great. Like I love this. I love watching someone play music. But when I'm the one on stage, you're just so inside your own head. And that's sort of in keeping with what I've heard you say in other interviews about being a shy person or having a shy disposition, which is something that's interesting to me because how do you reconcile that with being able to sing, not just in public, but in front of what might sometimes be an, an unwilling audience on a city street? Yeah, I just think, for me, I've never, and I'm sure you've heard me say this if you watch other interviews, I've never wanted to be a superstar. I've never wanted to be, like, being famous has never been an objective of mine. And so if I'm on stage, if it's 100 people or 20,000 people, it's quite simple. I literally just want to play the song the best way I can play it. And so any shyness I have is completely sort of protected and dissolved by my desire to actually just play music to people. Um, and that's my kind of <laughs> way in which I can get past that. Because for years, I really struggled with talking in between songs because I just, I didn't want to, I just, I didn't see that as, uh, I was so uncomfortable. I don't know, yeah, it's just, it's as if there's a little bubble around me when I'm singing. Is there something cultural about that, do you suppose? I mean, I'm not saying anything particularly revelatory here, but there seems to be a readiness to sing publicly among the Irish, more so than any other culture in the Northern Hemisphere that I can think of. I think so, yeah. And I think, um, yeah, because you go to any pub down the country in Ireland, like there'll be no professionals, but there will be somebody at two o'clock in the morning who is the person that's going to sing happily. And uh and will be supported by everybody. And um, I think that's something I take for granted because, as you said, it's not necessarily the norm. But uh, yeah, but yeah, no, I, I do. I, I just, ever since I started playing the guitar, like the idea of playing in front of people just was not nerve-wracking to me. So if I take that from the first time I played to people to say last year where we had our first festival headline slot and it was like 70,000 people, don't get me wrong, it's a really big deal in my head. And I do have moments of sort of nervousness but it i i don't I, it's the same thing in my head if that makes sense it's it just I, it's the same as playing in the back room of a pub yeah. a little bit yeah have you seen that viral video of a late night wedding party singing the rattlin bog oh i don't know there's another kind of similar ish one at a guy's wake down the country and um and a man starts singing uh mr brightside and it's wild you got to see it because it, it's all in memory of this sort of local hero it's class you know, a, a dear friend of mine named Cassie O'Sullivan, has, as you can deduce, was Irish, but uh -huh. she's a friend from New York, and she passed last year. And my former bandmate went to her funeral in Dublin last year, and she said it had this transformative effect on how she sees being a musician, because it was just all of these people, like you said, musicians and non-musicians alike, and they just say... Kamara Thomas, sing a song in the in the pub. So just stand up and sing a cappella. And there was just such a great informality to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And like I said, I mean, it, it's not anything you see anywhere up in the north that I can think of. So no, true. It's such it's such a special thing. 
Yeah, it's a very important part of Irish communities, I guess. And and my auntie and I were singing at a funeral of a very dear friend and uh, years ago. And my auntie has sung to loads of people, huge crowds kind of thing. But uh, But she sang a song that day and this guy, all his friends were in the front row. And she said as soon as she started singing a certain song, one of the guys just like tears were streaming down his face. And she was like that's all I need, like to bring that catharsis and to evoke that reaction and take him to wherever he needs to be. She's like, that's all I need. And so, you know, like little lessons like that have kind of, um, have kind of really helped me out through all this because uh, I think in what you do as a career musician and ultimately like as a pop musician, I guess, you can, there's so many ways in which your career can change and transform and you can sort of make certain decisions and 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 take certain shortcuts and and so but i think where i came from is that it really means the world to me just to be able to look and it keeps me if i'm 30 dates into 100 if i look into the crowd and see one person just with tears it's just like that keeps me going so uh yeah it's very important and I would imagine that you're having kind of cut your teeth and honed your craft as a street performer has really sharpened that sensibility. So with that, Dr. Ho, this area of research that you've carved out is is definitely one of the more specific pursuits I've come across since I started the show. So I'd be curious to know what made you want to start researching busking in the first place. The quick answer is I like playing music too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I can strum a few chords. and um, I did dream becoming a rock star. Haven't we all? <laughs> and so um, anyways, um, I was born in Hong Kong and um, I went to Australia for study. So I was 17. So that's where I first learned about the concept of busking. So I went out busking with a very good friend um, in Australia. So we would just perform in tunnel like knee train station. Then fast forward, I came back to Hong Kong. It's about like 10 years ago, about 10, yeah, a bit more 10 years ago. So I started performing on the street, like pursuing uh, my interest in music. And at the same time, I had a job as a research assistant at a university. So I then had this idea, maybe I can research on street performance. So I started digging the research literature resources in the academic world mm-hmm. to see if the two things could combine, you know. So kind of um, mm. mixing my interests in music and busking yeah. into research. And then I started sending out emails to different professors in Hong Kong, you know, see if someone could supervise a research project on busking. So I um, I tried many, you know, different professors, sociology, urban studies, but um, didn't get many responses until a professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. His name is Winton Ow. He's, he's a professor of industrial psychology. What's industrial psychology? Industrial organizational psychology is applicational. So it focuses on this psychology in workplace, like employees' well-being or personnel profile, personality analysis, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, he's been a long time in that area. He wanted to do something for himself, so and the, he chose art. Mm-hmm. You know, he started investigating the psychology in theater and drama. So he became one of my target invitation, and um, he he responded and say, "Okay, well, 
maybe you should come to my uni and um, apply for a postgraduate program. Mm -hmm. That's how I got into research. So that's how I started my study in masters. But then it's tricky because I enter a psychology department. Mm -hmm. Now, typically street performance or arts or performing arts is investigated by cultural studies or the more cultural um, areas of the academic world. Sure. Like um, it's not very typical by psychology. Mm -hmm. So I, I had a hard time applying the psychology and theories and methods, statistics in that area. But turns out it worked. <laughs> turns out it worked. Um, and there's this policy thing in Hong Kong. Even to its date, there is no a global consensus on the legality of busking. So in Hong Kong, it's not legal if you play music on the street and seek donation. Like, for example, you place your guitar case open, then you may get intervention by police officers. Technically, it's not legal. I wanted to try research and see if it make a difference. Oh, and to actually change the laws. Well, I wouldn't say to change the law, mm. but to generate, to generate through research certain findings that could at least inform policymakers. You see, the legality of busking rests on the assumption that performing or busking or entertaining activity in public space benefits the perception of public space. But that notion, that view uh -huh. that busking benefits public space mm -hmm. has been well established anyway since the 70s. So that's not your hypothesis. That's a, that's a generally accepted idea? Yeah, yeah. It's a general idea since the 70s. Um, William White proposed that in the 70s. As I mentioned some moments ago, busking is typically um, investigated from the sociological or cultural side of the academic world, less from the um, quantitative science side of the world. So theoretically, that hypothesis is a novel by the time I got into it, but it's the method, the methodological aspect of that hypothesis. I tried to make a contribution and that is to apply an experimental approach to examine that hypothesis that busking can benefit um, the perception of public space. So how do you do that? Um, in quantitative science, there's a general research method of uh, experimental method. Mm -hmm. So basically you have, you have two groups, an experimental group and a control group. Mm -hmm. The experimental group receives the treatment. The control group doesn't receive the treatment. And you hold everything else identical between two groups. And then you test if they differ in terms of some variables of interest that you hypothesize that should be affected by the manipulation. Okay. To put it in context, the hypothesis is that street performance enhances perception of public space. Mm -hmm. So if you have a public space with versus without busking, and you ask pedestrian to read the two versions of the public space, then you can expect differences between the ratings of the two public space. Ratings of public space with busking should be higher than ratings of public space without busking. That's your expectation, yeah, experimentally. And so what are the different metrics when, when you ask the control versus the treated groups, what are you asking them to measure? We ask them to rate public space in terms of visitability, mm -hmm and restorativeness. What does that mean? 
And so visitability is the extent to which people perceive the place、mm-hmm. worth spending time about.、Mm-hmm. So if a place is visitable, then people feel like、oh, I want to stay here more. I、um, want to come back more often. Yeah.、Uh, restorativeness is the extent to which people perceive a place as relaxing. Yeah, relaxing, calming, etc. So we ask people to evaluate places in those. Variables and draw comparison and see if they differ. And then I know that there are other metrics about the actual performer themselves. And so I think, that, correct、mm. me if I'm wrong, but those metrics are the emotion, intellect, the technique of the performer. Those are the other things that you're asking them to measure. Is that right? Oh, that actually goes with the other line of research. So the research that we've been discussing. Deals with the investigation on the impact of street performance on the perception of public space, but the matrices、um, or the multiple aspects of audience experience you just mentioned deals with a second line of research that focuses specifically on how audience experience busking. Okay, one thing that you had said that I found fascinating was you said a street audience. That values emotion, intellect, and technique are more satisfied with the overall performance. Those who value place and interaction spend more time watching the performance, and those who value novelty, place, and technique donate more money. Oh, really? No way! Isn't、uh, that crazy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we found. Yeah, and it relates so much to what Dermot said at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When when he felt he was emotionally engaged, he felt he had a feeling it would be a good day.、Right. Totally. But it was funny because on those days where it didn't go well, if that's what I'm judging it by, money made, you know,、um, I couldn't put my finger on why. Like I'm not a grumpy performer, you know. Like in my mind, I was doing it the exact same way, but clearly I was just less engaging as a performer, even just in terms of like. The mindset of someone playing music—that was really weird to me because it was in real time. I was just like, say, I went for、mm-hmm. seven days and I started off like this and then just went like this, and I was、yeah. just like, why is this happening? Because <laughs> I feel like I'm doing the same thing, but whatever sort of energy I was putting out just、mm-hmm. was not. I like I remember there was a guy, and this is sort of off topic, but there was a guy in Dublin who he was like an Irish traditional musician, and he would wear a waistcoat with like Celtic design all over it.、Mm-hmm. He had a little Hat stand nearly with four different guitars on it, and his setup was so engaging that before he even played music, there was like tons of people gathered around just to hear him,、mm. you know. And so he would just he would be successful no matter what he did. Whereas my thing was super simplistic, and I and I sort of leaned into the idea that well, if the music is good, then people will sort of give me money, buy CDs, whatever. But、uh, it wasn't that simple. Sure. And so, Robbie, would would you say that the example that Dermot just gave about the traditional singer who has a very visually appealing setup, especially to tourists in Dublin, would that count as novelty? Is would it get rated high on the novelty scale? It must, right? Yeah, can be. Well, I, I I cannot be sure.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. So, Dermot, would you say that was there a direct relationship between the money that you would make and also the crowds that you would? Accumulate definitely, yeah. I mean, it's a science too, right? Like、mm-hmm. you were talking about Australia, Robbie, and like I busked in a really, really silly way for about 
three years where I would just play for three hours straight and I didn't stop playing and wow. hopefully someone walking past would do that. And then I met an Australian guy called Maliki mm. who was like this busking wizard and he told me he was just like, no, no, no. He was like, get a better amp, take up as much space as you can, play a half hour set and then sort of say, thank you so much. Like, that's the end of the show. Mm. Um, and now I'm selling CDs or whatever. And he would just mm. do that three times a day. So uh, mm. there was a there was a there was a real script to it. Yeah, exactly. There was a real change when I started actually treating it like a show that I did mm-hmm. a few times a day. And um, there's there's a real way that you can make it work. But ultimately, you're just trying to make people feel like they have seen something worthy of donating to it. But it's a funny dynamic in my own head anyway, because I play music because I love it, right? But when you play in the street, ultimately, your goal is to make money from it, um, which is interesting. I remember there was days where I wouldn't care who stopped, right? And I would just play anything I felt like playing. Um, I would even play my own songs that nobody knew at that time. So, like, I knew those days wouldn't be as successful. Or I could play Ed Sheeran covers all day, and then I would have a sort of good day. And uh mm. And so, yeah, people really figure out how to busk successfully, I guess. The Aussies are very good at it. That's wisdom, like the script thing. And um, one of the central themes that we have dealt with is the fluctuation of life, you know, at various level, at broad level, at life, even fluctuations with our emotions, readiness, anxiety, satisfaction, confidence during a set. Mm. And by by knowing and purposely decided, okay, this I have a script, I have a 30-minute set, I'm going to play these six songs, you seem to manage. Oh, it gives us an anchor for managing or regulating our fluctuations. So, mm. yeah, so it's not going in random direction. We know there's a beginning, we know there's an end. Yeah. And even within the song, because recently I've been watching your clips on YouTube, you're a powerful performer. Mm. Like, during a song, you really manage the dynamics of how you convey the meanings of a song. Mm-hmm. There's a calm moment, calm moment, and you explode, you know. Sure, uh, sure, sure. And that's the powerful part of it and what really grabbed the audience heart. Uh-huh. It's, it's the emotional engagement thing, yeah. It's true, though, yeah, because even nowadays, when we play shows when we're on tour, it might be an hour and a half long, but I know, say if there's 15 songs in that, I know that when I'm 10 songs in, because I worry a lot about my voice and I spend too much time thinking about it and tightness and all that kind of stuff. And it's definitely a psychological issue. But anyway, um, (laughs) it's a larger conversation. But when I'm 10 songs in, I feel my whole body kind of loosen. And I I think I become a much better performer because I'm like, oh, sweet. Like, I can see the finish line. Like, this gig has gone well. When I'm songs one and two, I'm kind of like, don't know how this is going to go. Is my voice sore? Do I feel good? Da-da-da. Whatever. But when I'm sort of two-thirds of the way through, I'm like, brilliant. Like, I can see Mm. the end. And not that I'm sort of willing it to be over, but just, like, I definitely relax because I know it's going to be okay. Whereas at the beginning, I'm like, you're not sure. Mm. You have an expectation. Yeah. Totally. And we probably, as humans we thrive within structure you know if if like if you're out there and as a a novice busker and you're just like well i'm just going to keep doing this i i would imagine it'd be maddening like i'm going to play eight hours a day or something like that you know totally and it is it is maddening but also i i don't know i i keep coming back to it and if someone were to listen to this um say even a younger musician i just i really do 
believe it's the best way to kind of figure it out. I, because, you know, like I, I get approached by people all the time that are kind of like, how do I get a show? How do I kind of get recognized by agents? And how do I sort of play at this venue? And it's like, you got people walking up and down the street all day, every single day. Like there's people that you can play to mm. whenever you want. And like yeah. tons of people, more than you'll get in a venue. Was there a, a, a moment or series of moments that kind of led to your success and establishment as a songwriter and performer from busking? Were you quote unquote discovered that way? No, they're separate things in my mind. Um, so one thing that I was aware of was, as I said previously, my best days when I was busking was when I played songs by other people. And because, you know, people in the street want to hear what they're hearing on the radio yeah. and and all that kind of stuff. And so that's when I'd have my best days playing in the street. But then with social media and stuff, because at that point it was sort of like Facebook and whatever, I would realize I was getting more fans of me, but then I knew my intention was to release my own music. And I was like, yeah. these people aren't necessarily here to hear my music. These mm -hmm. people are here because they like when I sing covers. And so... I kind of took a decisive step away from busking because I knew mm. I wanted a career of singing my own music and, and this sort of fan base I was gathering wouldn't necessarily be that interested when that time came to bring mm. out my own music. So I kind of stepped away from uh -huh. it for that reason, yeah. And that's a tried and true method. That's the Beatles method. They would play in Hamburg playing yes. covers for hours a night, you know? Yep. I just It puts me in a spot now where having played in the street for years... I'm just very, very grateful for every time I get to play to people, you know? I think, um, mm -hmm. I think like, we did a tour, because obviously I'm lucky enough now to sort of play to big, beautiful venues, theaters, and arenas mm -hmm. and stuff. But, like, just before the end of last year, we were in uh, Malaysia, we were in Singapore, South Korea, and... I was playing to like 15 people and then we played a festival. I'd say there's about 30 people and there was this huge field, but there was just like 30 people gathered at the front. <laughs> but like, I don't know. I think in another life, I'd be really sort of, I'd think that was beneath me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I think busking just puts me in a space where like, if you're playing to people, then life is good, you know? Yeah. Well, again, I'm coming at this from an, an American perspective, but it just seems to me something intrinsically Irish about that. Mm. Just what I've seen and being in New York City and going to, there's some great Irish bars. The you know I know you're in the East Village right now. There's a great Irish bar, the 11th Street Bar, where a friend of mine bartends and like oh, really? okay. you know. And I would just see people would just stand up and um, and start singing. Yeah, I just it's just my experience just listening to Irish music, like listening to the Clancy Brothers and you know all the traditional music. It's just it's so plain spoken yet so emotional and it's in keeping with everything you're saying about just valuing music and being a musician for a musician's sake, mm. you know? Yeah. I must take it for granted, you know, cause it's just, it's, it's kind of all I know, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I just think the mindset when you start writing music in Ireland is that, um, everything you'll ever need kind of comes from the song. You know what I mean? It doesn't, mm. So that's why the Clancy Brothers are a good example, you know? It's just like, it's it's just like the song gives you everything. So, uh, I mean, when I sort of signed a record deal and signed to managers and stuff, they would for years they would implore me to open my eyes when I was singing because I would just sing full shows nearly with my eyes closed because <laughs> I just would much rather be in those memories yeah. and in that kind of 
uh, headspace because it felt very vivid to me. And I think it was important for me if I was to give a valuable performance to kind of relive memories as clearly as I could and, and, and that type of thing. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. I think uh, I think as an Irish songwriter, I think songs are sort of, there's a real reverence for songs in the country, yeah. What are your favorite traditional Irish songs, like as sung by the Clancy Brothers, for example? Well, the Clancy Brothers are a good one. Uh, one I always, when I was playing in the street last year, when I was busking around the world, um, I would usually, every time I'd finish the sets with a song called The Parting Glass. Yeah, oh God, that's a good one. Um, yeah, and I don't know, you know, like as well... At a time last year and the last few years where the world feels a little bit weird and a bit kind of uh, chaotic, that last line of that song, good night and joy be with you all, is a lovely way to kind of, I don't know, sign off on that experience because the great thing about those busking sets was I could really see everybody. And if you play in a room with 10,000 people, it's hard to see people and it's hard to really connect. And so when you play in the street, you can sort of like, you're at eye level with people Mm-hmm. People can talk to you. There's no in-ear monitors. Like it's it's people are right there with you, and so it was a nice way of signing off on those. So the parting glass has always been important to me. Yeah. And so Robbie, would you? Um, you're obviously very struck by Dermot's ability to convey emotion and connect, and also operate dynamically. As a researcher and psychologist, take your time answering this question. But do you? How do you interpret that? Through what lens do you see that, you know, knowing that Dermot has an experience or track record is a, a street performer? When you look at that from a researcher's perspective, does that make you think of any of the other things that you've learned from your research about busking and how that's affected the different results of your research, things like that? Hmm. I'm not sure if I know how to answer it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, yes, I am struck by German's ability to deliver powerful performance. Uh, I'm not exactly sure about the question. Sorry. I'm not sure if I understand the question myself, but the point, but <laughs> if you, in terms of connecting your research to what you know, what you've seen from street performers and how it affects an audience and like what we've talked about today. How can you connect those things? Is there anything that comes up for you? Um, one short thing is I haven't researched at all the performer perspective, like the performer's anxiety. I haven't researched the performer's satisfaction, even though, uh, interestingly, this is a reason, a recent topic I became interested in. So far, I have researched the audience experience by um, recently, I became interested in examining the shared experience between the audience and the performer. Do they feel the same? Mm. Do they feel the same? Um, I guess um, the interest in studying or looking at shared experience is driven by a practical concern. Mm-hmm. Again, there's this legal issue with busking. So buskers, they perform on the street with good intention. So they intend they intend to benefit the place, but it's that what audience feel. So it's important to figure out whether their good intention matches with how the audience perceive. Yeah. If it matches, then mm-hmm. it makes sense, you know? So I guess um, I'm motivated by that practical concern. 
but I haven't looked at it yet. Yeah, I guess that will be my next step, is to look at the match or mismatch between the audience and the performance. Totally, because that happens now in what I do. You know, even not playing in the street, the way you say driven by a practical concern, and I don't know if that's necessarily what you mean, but in my mind, mm. say I play a show in Florida and I've been on the road for six months and it's show 200, like... I might go into that and practically I might be exhausted and I might be like sort of the lyrics feel tired in my head, but then someone in the audience might be going to three shows that year, you know, and it's a very important part of their year. And, and so emotionally they might be so charged up. And so it's, it's interesting, right? It's about like audience and performer trying to meet each other on that same level, um, mm. which can be tricky sometimes. And I would imagine there's a symbiosis where you feed from each other. Definitely. And there's ed energy to be taken from them. Um, and I just think for the performer, there's a massive responsibility to kind of, you know, like to rise to that occasion. Um, because, again, practically, geographically, wherever you are, it's kind of irrelevant, right? Because there might be someone in the room where it's a really important thing that they need. And so, uh, but yeah, you do have to try and get on the same level. But uh, yeah. Busking is funny in that regard, you know, because there's so many different types of performance. And uh, hmm. and yeah. so it's it's like some days maybe someone just does not want to hear a guy playing sad songs on the guitar, but they would love if they saw like five <laughs> people doing like a dance routine. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Isn't that what, what was in, what's exciting about Busking? Uh, the diversity, the autonomy, the freedom of it to have the diversity and people have every right to choose what they attend to in a public space. Of course. Where everything can happen, yeah. Yeah, and because like I said, I used to busk in Boston and I I didn't really know how it worked in Boston in terms of like, was it legal? Could you play wherever you wanted and that kind of thing? And so mm. I started off playing outside Harvard and that you need a license and I wasn't allowed to play there. And then I went to Fanul Hall down by the water and uh, it's quite an interesting sort of middle ground where you are allowed to play but you have to like provide this portfolio of what you've done. And it's like a press pack almost of like, well, this is my music and this mm. is what I would do. And and so it's kind of this weird middle ground because in Dublin, at least when I did it, it was very much like if you have a guitar and a song, you're allowed set up. And if you mm. find enough space, you're allowed to play your music. But uh, Boston was a funny one because you were allowed to do it, but it was really kind of like only if you're good enough and only if we decide you're allowed to do it. And so it was this kind of weird middle ground. Yeah, Audition thing. Exactly. Yeah. So we've got a little under 10 minutes. And so, Robbie, if you could just give us in summary what the results of your research are, you know, specifically about the the main lines of research. One, the effect that street performance has on an audience's perception of public space. Uh, I'd like to hear the, the results of that research in summary and mm. also the results of your research on how you differentiate busking from begging? Okay. The first line of research, uh, overall speaking, our experimental findings tend to support, tend to support the hypothesis that presence of street performance um, does tend to enhance people's perception of public space. And it is true in a context of control lab study. Mm -hmm as well as um, field experiment, like in actual public space. Even though um, in the latter case, the findings um, are, tend to be weaker. The tricky thing is when you compare um, in a field 
So when with public space without busking, all the respondents are were pedestrians. But for public space with busking, the respondents can be further divided into audience and mere passersby. And we had to look at those who actually stay and watch busking、um, for the findings for for the findings to come out. So it's trickier than that. So merely have street performance in a public space doesn't necessarily enhance people's perception. It is those people who actually engage with the performance, who actually consume, and receives the energy、mm-hmm. from performance、um, that would. Perceive the place more positively. So, I actually knew a guy when I was living in Brooklyn, and there's a the L train、hmm. stop on Bedford Avenue is a main hub, and there's all, often performers there. And I knew a guy. This is twenty years ago, and he played like kind of an avant garde violin thing. He he was just telling me someone came up and gave him twenty dollars once, which is a big deal, especially in nineteen ninety nine. And then someone immediately walked up and said, "I'll give you fifty if you stop." Oh no, <laughs> that's the freedom in public space. <laughs> I think of that because you're saying, like, obviously perceptions can be enhanced by those people who actually want to stick around and listen. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I interrupted you. Please continue. Uh, regarding uh differentiate busking and. Begging, I actually like to mention that research of audience experience、um, that that might relate、um, to that question because I believe、um, well there are many ways in differentiating busking from other activities、um, in public space, and I guess we had the assumption that busking can be qualified as a performing arts. From the audience perspective, what findings could we have possibly、um, generate to support that claim? So, turns out it's that, and based on large samples in Hong Kong,、um, audiences were able to evaluate a variety of different performances, musical, non-musical, along these measures. So, consider these universal rulers of street performances. And、um, one more thing I'd like to add is that、um, different dimensions, such as these, are also found in non-street performance contexts, such as drama, opera, and theater. So, based on these、um, findings, we may then establish the argument that, at least from the audience perspective, experience of street performance can be differentiated into dimensions. That are also found in a non-street context, which、um, allows us to make the argument that busking is a performing arts industry. What are those dimensions? The well, all the metrics that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, the metrics we mentioned.、Yeah. Okay, in some cases, this is what I found fascinating. In the laboratory setting, like you're showing a person a picture of a person with a guitar case, or、uh-huh. what are the different pictures you're showing them? The different pictures. Those are. Pictures of public space in Hong Kong, except that we make two versions of it: one with street performance, one with an image of basket, one without it. That is the laboratory version of the study,、um, which of course has less external validity, which means it's less representative of the re- of the reality because it's a simulation thing. Yeah, it reflects more about people's attitude than their actual reaction to what would be going on. 
in real life. Far out, man. I mean, it's just really wild what you do. Um, and just so cool. You were curious enough about a thing to want to see how it works. And also, it seems to me you are trying to affect change. And as, as you said, with policymakers. So it's a beautiful thing. And I'm so grateful to both you guys. And I wish you the best of luck in your respective endeavors. Of course. Yeah. Thank you, Robbie. Thanks, man. It's my pleasure to meet both of you and talk to both of you in real time. Yeah, such a great pleasure. Nice. Yeah. All the best, guys. Talk to you a bit. Dermot's North American tour is now underway. And if you're in New York City, you can catch him at Madison Square Garden on June 14th. His latest album, Sonder, is out now. And he is also featured on the track Won't Back Down with Youngboy NBA and Bailey Zimmerman from the Fast and Furious movie Fast 10. If you're interested in reading about Dr. Ho's research in more detail, you can search for his published papers on Google Scholar. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, social media manager is Bailey Constis, and our digital producer is Keenan Cush. If you liked today's episode, please tell a friend about the podcast, give us a review, and subscribe to the show. For more information, you can go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening.